my fellow investors, welcome back to another episode of the Newcomer Investor channel, where we talk about stocks, trends, insights, and debate. I hope you're all doing wonderfully today. I want to start off by thanking all of you engaged listeners out there. Once again, you know, I really appreciate uh, the listenership, the feedback, the positive comments. I'm glad that everyone's enjoying this. So if you do like it, I absolutely appreciate if you can give us a like on YouTube, if you can give us a subscribe, if you can give us a five stars on Spotify, all of this helps share the podcast with everyone else by boosting the algorithm. Now, before getting into this episode, I do have to tell you something you already know, but it's very important that I repeat it. Nothing I say is financial advice. Really, it's only entertainment. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just sharing what I do. And I've made lots of mistakes. I'm very open about them. And I will continue making mistakes. So always do your own due diligence and your own research. Okay, now let's get into the exciting stuff. My friends, I have been active this week when it comes to investing. Uh, so I'm speaking right now on Sunday, May 28th. Uh, so over the course of the rolling last seven days, I have both purchased and sold quite a few stocks. If you're an engaged listener, you know I was sitting on my largest cash pile that I've had for a long time. Generally, I'm 100% invested with like almost no cash and I was at about 2% or so. Uh, now I'm down to 0.1%. So I've basically uh, spent all that cash on new stocks. Um, so yeah, very exciting times. Okay, so let's get started with some of the sales that we did this week. Uh, so if you listened to two episodes ago, so the one before the Dividend Guy interview, which was great, by the way, you should check it out. Uh, that one, I unveiled my full portfolio as of, I think it was May 15th, if I'm not mistaken. And you could see how many positions I have. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy, right? And so a goal that I've had for a while now was to reduce my position slowly but surely. You know, each time I break even on a stock, just get rid of it. Or even if I don't break even... Um, and so anyway, I have been up on Fortis and Telus. I actually got in like a long time ago, but the positions were tiny and insignificant. And at this point, you know, it's just even if they're great to hold on to and collect those growing dividends, I thought, you know what, let me just get rid of them. Uh, reconsolidate this money into one of my larger position. And then at some point, you know, if I do see a good opportunity in these two stocks, I would definitely come back in. Uh, but with actually, you know, you know, thousands of dollars at a time instead of, you know, a couple of shares here and there. So, you know, other than that, those are two great companies. Like, I don't want you to view this as me saying those are bad. They are excellent dividend growers. And I think, you know, as a long-term uh, position, it's hard to go wrong with those two. So I like the businesses very much. They just, in the context of my portfolio, they just didn't make sense to keep. So I got rid of those. Now, another trade that may sound a little more surprising to you, my friends, I finally sold Meta. If you know me, you know I am a fan of the business. I have been talking about how great of a buy it was uh, over the last uh, pretty much year at this point. Uh, well, at least let's say six months. I mean, it, it went, if I recall, it was in US dollars, it was around 370 something. It fell down to like 90 something, which I found ridiculous. That was around the end of uh, 2022. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a fantastic buy. It was trading around 10, 12 times earnings or so, which for a, you know, dominant tech stock with a moat is really cheap, in my opinion. So it was a real value stock, but it just kept creeping up. And it got, I think at this point now, it may have got a bit ahead of itself. It's now become a pretty expensive tech stock uh, right now. Now, when is it the right time to sell? I honestly don't know. I hear a lot of people say, just let your winners you know, keep running. And it's probably not a bad idea in general. But I am in a position right now when, you know, if the stock runs up so much, there is a chance to take a few profits and reinvest them somewhere else. I thought at this point, it just kept running. 
let's finally part ways with this great business, which I still do love. So uh, I actually put this money back into the index. So I still have Meta, but it's indirectly uh, owned via the S&P instead, which I am more comfortable with. Also have to take into account the fact that it does not pay a dividend. Now I know all the, the dividends and the anti-dividend bros are going to come at me for this, but I do like to consider also, you know, the, the projected annual dividend income. And if I can switch out a non-dividend stock for one or an index that pays a small dividend along the way, that does make me happy. So that is why I finally sold Meta. I do think it is a business, I'm not talking about a stock here, but the business has a very good future. And I do look forward to seeing what they, all the new products that they keep launching and even just their updates on the existing products. I do think Reels are incredible. I love Instagram as well. Uh, and, you know, WhatsApp, a lot of um, potential here to monetize. And even the Facebook app in general. I mean, I still use it. I still see lots of people using it and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Anyway, now to get into the more interesting stuff, let's look at where I deployed all of this cash, starting with Granite Real Estate Investment Trust. You already know this REIT. I've spoken about it a few times now. I've even done an episode where I actually kind of laid out the thesis. At this point, it's still the same. I believe it is honestly one of, if not the strongest REIT in Canada. Their debt is not too high. They just announced another uh, renewal to their buyback program. So to buy up to 10% of their units, which is great. When you announce buybacks like that, it just shows you're confident in your business. You're going to generate excess cash flow that you can reinvest in yourself uh, so to give a bigger piece of the pie to all the unit holders. So, so this is great. I recently listened to an interview with the CEO. The interview dates from end of 2022, so it's not exactly current, but it's also not too old. He's talking a bit more about their strategy and about how they, they really, firstly, they see a good future for their industry, their area in general. Uh, when it comes to these, you know, logistics centers. But he also talked a lot about the fact that they are really trying to be value investors and buying land at good prices. So if they see land that is just too expensive, they just don't even buy those properties. So I thought that was really nice. Uh, shows, you know, very... Uh, very good discipline with regards to their capital allocation strategy. So really gave me confidence. I mean, I was already confident before, but it's nice to see a CEO be so clear about their vision and what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. He also talked about the stickiness of their deals, said that a lot of their tenants, you know, they don't come for like two or three year leases, but they come for five, six, 10 year leases at the minimum. And even that the equipment that they have within their centers, sometimes all of those things are even more expensive than the value of the property itself. So when a tenant makes that kind of commitment, it's that they're very serious. It's not something where they'll easily just leave, uh, you know, come and go in five seconds, right? So yeah, highly recommend you listen to that interview. I forgot what the title uh, of that podcast was called, but I will find it and I'll put it in the description. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan of Granite. I, I really thought now is a good time to just keep buying more because I don't see the stock price falling too much. It just kind of stays around that $80 mark or so. So now it is 2.33% of my portfolio. It is my 16th largest position. So out of 46 stocks, it's basically now uh, pretty much in the top third uh, as opposed to, you know, position, I don't know, 20, 28 or 30 something, I think. So now it's actually uh, right underneath Quebecor and right over Brookfield Asset Management. The second stock that I bought more of was the ticker symbol VFV. That is the Canadian version of VOO. It is the S&P 500 index funds. My friends, the 
S&P index, regardless of what people say, I really think it's probably over the long term gonna be my best investment. When I see all these um, these charts showing like the top five or top 10 biggest companies in the S&P in each decade, it's crazy to see how much change there is. I don't know if I'm gonna be a great stock picker and know when to enter a position and when to leave when I see things change. But the thing is, if you buy the S&P, then you just have that anyway. Like you just evolve with the times as things just happen, right? And you don't have to even worry about it. So I'm happy to buy more of that index. It is now 8.9% of my portfolio, hoping to get it, you know, to 10 and more, hopefully soon. Uh, I, I would like to see it be my largest position over time. It's gonna be hard to beat Brookfield, especially if it stays so undervalued, because I'm probably gonna just keep buying more of it. But at some point, you know, I would like to see this broad index be my number one. I think for most people, that is the best thing to buy. Now, I will say, you know, there are a lot of people who talk about how it's probably overvalued and, and who bring up pretty good concerns about it. And it could be, but it also could not be. You know what I mean? If you consider all the people since 2012 who said that, you know, a huge crash is coming soon and they missed out on 10 years of a huge bull run. So, I, yeah, the S&P is kind of my set it and forget it kind of index where I just keep buying regardless. So I added to that and I think it's a good decision. The third stock I added to, this may also be a bit of a surprise, it is Canadian National Railway. Now, not a surprise because of the business, because you all know how much I love it. I don't need to explain it. It is our largest rail company here in Canada. Uh, super wide moats, you know, it's an ETF for economic activity in, in honestly not just Canada, but America too. So that's not the reason. What's more surprising is the fact that it does trade at kind of a premium valuation, and it has done so for as all the time that I've held it, which is since early 2019. So... The market just values this at 20 times earnings minimum, regardless of what happens, and we just kind of have to deal with that, you know? So that sucks. Now, why did I buy it? Well, if you paid attention just this last few weeks or so, actually just this week, uh, we saw a kind of a sharp decline in the price, fell below $160, around $154, $155, and I thought, you know what? If you buy, if you look historically at the chart, it's nice to buy on those little dips because it never has a big dip. And so to me, this is one of those little dips where, you know what, still trades an expensive valuation, but might as well just buy it because there may not be another good opportunity. So that's why I added to it. It is now, let me check, 7.2% of portfolio. So it's closing in on Scotiabank, which is at 7.7%. I would like to see CN be my third largest holding. I think that would be great. Uh, so, you know, if it stays in this 150 something range, I do expect to slowly add to it and it may beat Scotiabank over time in terms of uh, portfolio sizing. So I'm excited for that. But yeah, CN to me is a safe stock. It's not going anywhere. Trades an expensive valuation, but it just always stays around there. So it's good to hold for now. The next stock that was on our buy list that I got this week was the High Dividend Index ETF, ticker symbol XEI. Uh, I've also spoken about this one before. Honestly, nothing new here. I enjoy it. I think it's a nice way to get exposure to some of Canada's best stocks and also the ones that pay the most dividends too, so that's great. With a pretty high yield, you get a really good mix of financials at just under 30%, but also energy at just under 30%. Uh, so I like it, and I almost doubled my position here. So I'm at still a very small position. It's 1.4% of portfolio, but that is a core holding that I would like to grow to, you know, maybe 5% over time. 
And you know, when I buy an ETF like this, and I buy an ETF like uh, the S&P 500, and I kind of compare and contrast Canada and the US, now what I'm about to say might be offensive both to Americans and Canadians, so I apologize in advance, but it does have me reflecting on the respective strengths uh, of our countries. I feel like Canada in general, I'm generalizing, so this does not include every stock, but a lot of them, in Canada, we have an emphasis on a lot of monopolistic kind of uh, industries and areas where you have a few dominant companies that, you know, are kind of like big dinosaurs. They're just there and very overwhelming and overbearing and they capture most of the market and they are cash cows. They don't grow extremely fast, but they pump out very reliable cash flows. Think of our banking industry where we have six banks, whereas in America there is like, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 or some crazy number. And I remember seeing, you know, the number of banks per capita in the U.S. is like insane compared to Canada, right? So we have six large banks over here. They all pay very good dividends. In terms of the telecom industry, you know, we have three really large players that control like 90% of the national industry. And you kind of have that replicated everywhere. And that's part of the reason why I like to buy XEI is I feel like within Canada, the way that the country, the economy, the government regulations, the way everything is set up, it seems like it rewards a few number of very large players. So we don't have that much competition and disruption. And that kind of tilts our stocks more towards big dividends and not very much growth overall. So in essence, I'm kind of, uh, you know, reducing Canada to one big income stock. Now, when I look at America, it's a very different story. Every day in the news, we see these stories of American companies that are, you know, booming. They're going great and then bust. Disaster. Look at the banks. What happened earlier this year, right? America is exciting. There's always stuff going on. There's a lot of competition and a lot of growth and a lot of disruption. Now, the result with that is that I feel like it's a little more volatile, right? It's kind of investing in, it's like the Wild West. You don't really know what you're going to get. So for me, and again, perhaps it's because I'm a foreigner and I'm less intimate with American, the, the American industries in general, but to me, investing in America is a lot more stressful. It's like when I buy the S&P, I am expecting there's going to be some volatility. Whereas when I invest in Canada, I expect it's going to be very boring and, and give me steady cash flows. So I think when you build your portfolio, and it's not me giving advice, but more just reflecting for myself, when I build my portfolio, when you know, I like having that exposure to both countries because we, we kind of get a good total return, but in a different way. I feel like Canada provides more of a cash flow oriented kind of total return and America is more of a capital appreciation oriented one. And you know, one isn't really better than the other. It's just different. But Canada certainly suits my personality a little bit more as a very conservative person with my money. Anyway, all reflections aside, I want to have a little bit of time dedicated for the last stock that I bought a little bit of. This one caused a stir. This was actually my most popular tweet and also my most criticized one, probably due to the way I worded it. But the last stock that I bought a little bit of was Enbridge. Now, for the uninitiated, Enbridge is the largest company, largest pipeline company, sorry, in Canada. It is very, very popular for its dividend. They've increased it every year for, I think, the last 26 or 28 years. The yield is really high. Now, the stock this week dipped below $50 Canadian, and it now yields over 7%, which, depending on what kind of investor you are, could put it in the red flag slash danger zone or in the opportunity zone. 
Now, the tweet I made caused a big stir because it seems like some people don't realize that you can simultaneously love and own a company while also knowing that there are big risks involved. At the end of the day, that is what investing is. At least that's what I think it is. Uh, so, yes, I bought some and, I, you know, you have to be wide eyed about the risks because there are some. I think the most pressing issue for Enbridge is debt. It is a capex heavy company. They make use of debts to make acquisitions or just to build new pipelines, right? So as a result, they have a lot of debt. If you look at their latest report, the consolidated statements of financial position, you look at the long-term debt section, that is 71 billion with a B, and you look at shareholders equity and that is 61.5 billion. So they have more in long-term debts than they have in shareholders equity. That is not a number that as a shareholder, I am thrilled to see. Generally, I'd like to see the opposite. You know what I mean? So they do carry a lot of debt. And that is, of course, an issue if they cannot keep up with the interest payments associated with said debt. The second big issue, though, to be fair, maybe I'll call it more of a very large annoyance than a existential threat, is the shares outstanding. If you look for charts of Enbridge's shares outstanding, you'll see at the end of 2009, they had 741 million shares in circulation. And you look today, it has more than doubled. We're at 2 billion shares. That means that Enbridge dilutes shareholders a lot. And again, uh, if you understand how this business works, generally they will do a combination of issuing new debt, but also issuing shares to fund their projects. So it goes together, but that is also a problem. And the third issue is the dividend payout. If you look at their consolidated statements of earnings, you'll see that their diluted earnings per share is 0.85 this quarter. That's very nice, except that they've announced a dividend payout of 0.8875. So they are paying out more in dividends than they are earning per share. Now those three things together, those are pretty bad. If you're a fellow investor in this company, you need to know about these things, right? You cannot stick your head in the sand and pretend that Enbridge is completely perfect, that their balance sheet is as perfect as Microsoft's because it is not. With that said, it's also not half as bad as I think a lot of people who get angry about this stock act like it is. There's a lot to like about Enbridge as well. Number one is the profile of the cash flows. My friends, not every cash flow is created equal. It's really important to understand that. Where do Enbridge's cash flows come from? They are underpinned by long-term contracts with their clients. It's based on the volume and not on the price of the commodity. So Enbridge has people paying them for the right to just put their oil through their pipelines, right? But Enbridge's cash flows does not depend on the price of oil. There's a reason that a bunch of oil companies, they cut their dividends, then they bring it back, then they cut it again, they, you know, fire a bunch of people, then they hire them again, and you see these news all the time in the oil industry. And with Enbridge, there's very little of that because most of those cash flows are very reliable. They don't depend on the capricious price of oil and on what the people of OPEC decide to do. It's not relevant, right? So that's a huge strength for Enbridge. And that's for the whole pipeline model in general. Now, this has big implications. If your cash flows are reliable, that means you are much better at planning because you can more or less project 
what your year is going to look like. If you look at their Q1 2023 earnings presentation PowerPoint, page 11, they have a very nice graph. They call it the low risk commercial model, and they show you their adjusted EPS and the distributable cash flow per share, uh, their projections versus the actual results. And it shows you how actually it's pretty much always in line. It just keeps going up. And yeah, it's just, it's wonderful, right? Now, the positive flip side of this uh, visibility is that if you know how much you're going to earn, that also means you can more easily structure a good debt ladder. So the absolute number of their debt may seem extreme, but if they also are very good at knowing how much they're going to make, they can actually deal with this debt pretty well. That's why I personally would not expect the debt to be a very big problem for them. It's also important to consider that not all debt is considered equal, my friends. Is the debt fully floating or is it fully fixed, right? If you look again at that same page 11 of the earnings presentation, they say that less than 5% of their debt is exposed to floating rates. That is huge, huge advantage. So only 5% of their debt could potentially suffer from high interest payments, but the rest is fine, it's fixed. The other thing you wanna look at to have some kind of benchmark, of course, is the industry, right? Because perhaps their debt ratio could be, you know, a very large extreme number on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, it may be actually not that bad at all, right? So if you look at their debt to EBITDA ratio, that is 4.6, 4.6 times, which is at the midpoint of their target range, I have checked out comparable companies like TC Energy and Kinder Morgan, and Enbridge did not stand out in a bad way. In fact, it has a lower debt to EBITDA ratio than TC Energy. So when looking at that, you realize that massive debt is part of these pipeline companies. That's kind of how they operate. Again, because visibility on cash flows means they can structure a good debt ladder and actually be okay. And the larger your asset base grows, the larger you can expect your debt on an absolute level to grow as well. So my feeling is as long as they can grow their cash flows per share faster than all the expenses and costs associated with that extra debt load over time, then they can keep servicing that debt and they'll actually be okay. Now, the other positive we have to talk about here relates to the dividend. Now, yes, we talked about just earlier that the dividend was consistently higher than the earnings per share, which is annoying. And I'm not going to make an excuse for it. Honestly, I don't like seeing that either. It's never a good thing, right? It's not something to brag about. However, I must give a rebuttal to those who say that the dividend is, you know, imminently going to be cut. They just can't sustain it. I don't think that's true. We need to look at the distributable cash flow per share, which Enbridge actually, you know, they care enough about us that they actually tell us what that is. If you look at the distributable cash flow, again, for their Q1 2023 earnings presentation, that was $3.1 billion, and per share, that is $1.57. Now, if you divide uh, that um, 88.75 cents, divided by 1.57, that is a 56% payout of the distributable cash flow. And that just shows you, yes, if you look at the standard accounting measure of earnings per share, the dividend is unsustainable. But if you look at the actual cash flow that's generated by the business, they can actually sustain it. They are okay. If you look at their dividend page, they also talk about this. They say their target dividend payout ratio is between 60 and 70% 70, 70 of DCF, which is a, according to them, a healthy balance. 
and we can draw comparisons here with the REITs industry or even with um, some of my favorite stocks, Brookfield Renewable and Brookfield Infrastructure. They have a metric called FFO, funds from operations. If you look at their EPS, sometimes they're even negative or they're much lower than the distribution. But if you look at the FFO, you see that the distribution is below. The FFO is the number that matters in this case. Anyhow, I hope you all understand. In my opinion, this is kind of a fair analysis of this company. I'm not looking at it trying to prove that it's either good or bad. I'm just looking at the facts and trying to draw a conclusion from it. My conclusion for now is there are no immediate red flags on this business. I would be really surprised if they cut the dividend, let's say this year or even the next. A cut is always possible, but I think at this point it is quite unlikely. In terms of their guidance for the near-term outlook, which they provide on page 15 of their Q1 2023 presentation, to me it looks quite encouraging. They're guiding for a 5% uh, compound annual growth rate in their EBITDA from 2022 to 2025. They are guiding for a 4 to 6% uh, compound annual growth on their earnings per share too, and a 3% compound annual growth on their distributable cash flow per share. They indicate modest headwinds from tax legislation, which is fair enough, that always happens, but that's fine. Post-2025, they are also guiding for a 5% compound annual growth rate in their EBITDA and their distributable cash flows and their earnings per share. So given the fact that they have an excellent track record in, you know, achieving what they give in their guidance, I don't see any immediate reasons to worry. They want to maintain their leverage within 4.5 to 5 times debt to EBITDA, so that's okay. Uh, they want to keep that payout range that they've had for a while, and they've indicated maybe doing some opportunistic share buybacks. That would be nice, but if they don't, it's fine. Now, in terms of the stock price, because this is another thing I get attacked on too, is they're like, oh, but it's not going to grow that much. Well, yes, Dimbo, I know it's not going to grow. <laughs> I'm not buying Enbridge for the growth. I am buying it for the cash flow, I do expect very modest stock appreciation. But if you look at my investing strategy, you know, I have my my buckets, I have my long term compounders. Those are the ones that I expect to really grow, uh, you know, over time. And then I have my cash flow machines, which I also expect to grow, but not as much on the capital appreciation side. Enbridge to me is more of a cash flow machine. If the stock price can grow a little, that's great. But if not, it is OK. Anyhow, my friends, that kind of concludes the episode for today. You know, in terms of general market overview, I want to reiterate again, for me, I am really a long-term investor again. I'm not that worried. You know, I go back, I look at my portfolio and I feel 99% of my portfolio right now are companies that I really don't imagine are going to go bankrupt. I think they'll be okay. There's going to be some volatility. We're going to get recessions and, and wars and crises and all kinds of bad times. But overall, I do see a positive future for, you know, most of the stocks that I'm holding. And I think it's all about being okay with the volatility and staying invested. So I expect to just keep reinvesting these cash flows as I have and, uh, you know, enjoy the ride. Once again, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed, do share with a friend, give us a subscribe, and I look forward to connecting again with you soon.